Boldly Going Nowhere, an intermittent podcast about whatever I want to talk about. George abandoned me. Don't ever forget that. Anyways, uh, before we get back to Aaron Burr, we're almost done with him, I promise. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or suggestions, you can email me at bgnpod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Jordan Ashcraft. You can follow me on Twitter at the same name. Uh, Facebook, if you can find me, same name. I'm mostly arguing with this girl I used to work with about whether or not Bill Gates is secretly in charge of Corona and trying to use it to track us all. I am not fully, uh, she has not fully explained to me the, uh, outline of that conspiracy theory, but we are enjoying ourselves, maybe? I don't know. Um, yeah, that's it. All right, let's go. Before we can get into the election of 1800, we have to go back and talk about two very important things, and one less important thing. The less important thing is the election of 1796. John Adams won the election with 71 electors against Thomas Jefferson, who came in with 68. This was the first election without George Washington, which set the tradition of presidents only uh, serving two terms, until FDR just annihilated that in the 20th century. So, obviously, this election is important in the grand scheme of things, but not that important to Burr himself. What does matter is that Burr ran as Jefferson's de facto vice president and felt slighted by the South not showing him much support since he only received 30 or 30 electoral votes in total and much less than the and much less from the South than was expected. The process back then was a bit different than it is now. Instead of running as a unit, a president and a vice president, everybody ran as an individual. So first place was president, second place was VP and nobody else really mattered. So even if Jefferson had won, Burr would not have even been close to becoming the VP. Theoretically, John Adams would have been the VP. Instead of showing clear support for Burr, the South essentially spread its various votes around to a number of candidates from both parties. This minor brush-off will come back into play later. Of much more importance was that Theodosia Burr died from what was probably stomach cancer in May of 1794 at the age of 48. Illness had haunted her for most of her adult life, and both she and Aaron knew that their time together was going to be relatively short. While Burr would become involved with other women to various degrees after her death, he never loved one in nearly the same fashion as he did Theodosia. Considering the early death of his parents, I failed to see anybody else who had as grand an effect on his life as her. She challenged him on his ideas, and was able to get a good read on people to a much fuller extent than he ever was. There are several key mistakes he makes in his political life after she died that one has to wonder if he would have made if she had been there, voicing her opinion and getting a better read on the situation than he ever could. His adventures in the Southwest and the unruly characters he interacted with there all might have played out very differently if she were still around watching his back. Their equitable relationship was the birthplace of his proto-feminism and desire to raise their daughter as they would a son. Burr would come to rely on his daughter in much the same way as his wife. He wrote to her constantly and sought her advice and opinion on most things he engaged in for many years. In a short time, she would become the central concern of his life, for better or for worse. Mostly for better. The second important thing we must talk about is the Manhattan Company. 
an enterprise that Burke conceived of and executed on in 1799 with such a brilliance and skill that it changed the course of the country's national politics. I am not exaggerating. Around the mid-1790s, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr began to be pen pals, exchanging letters at a regular pace and even meeting once or twice. Jefferson was essentially trying to build a cross-regional coalition of not quite Republicans necessarily, but more like people who weren't Federalists. Remember in this period that parties are still kind of half-developed and not quite as formal as we recognize them now. Eventually, Jefferson tasked the young New Yorker with prying New York from the grasp of the Federalists, who controlled New York basically at all levels of government. New York City was a bustling young city on the move, but it had a terrible problem, an almost comical lack of potable water. By the 1790s, there was one well from the whole in the whole city which was considered safe to drink from yellow fever and other epidemics struck the city every couple of years killing hundreds to thousands of people burr having just been elected to the state assembly in 1798 used a quiet period after a particularly bad run of yellow fever to enact his plan what if he created a semi-public utility company the manhattan company that would seek to create new sources of water for the city and what if he got prominent new yorkers from every political party on the board of said company so that everybody could be cooperative and supportive and move the idea quickly through the assembly and governor's office sounds like a good idea right and what if what if at the very last moment he slipped a little bit of wording into the utilities charter that allowed it to pursue whatever financial pursuits it wanted with any extra income and money it had after providing water for the city let me explain new york and new york city specifically had already begun the process of becoming the financial powerhouse of the entire country arguably the world that it is today but in the decade before the 19th century it had exactly two banks Two banks that were controlled by Federalists. One was a national bank and one was a state bank. Back in the day, banks were a little more political than they are nowadays. Well, what I mean is that they were political in a slightly different way than they are today. They often served as an unofficial arm of political parties, and in New York City, the only two banks were Federalist creatures through and through. Men with Republican affiliations were often denied loans and credit. Men with Federalist affiliations were often granted loans and credit, no matter if they were a good bet or not. What mattered was their party loyalty, not necessarily their solvency. Besides squeezing Republicans out of much-needed credit and capital, this reality also kept many men in the Federalist Party when they would have loved nothing else to proclaim themselves Republicans, or at the very least, oppose the Federalists. Also, since there was a property requirement to vote, the Federalist Bank monopoly um, strangled access to credit and loans that could be used to then go out and buy property and then be allowed to vote. The 1790s were a good time to be a Federalist by the end, and also they were like the last time to be the Federalists, to be clear. <laughs> by the end of the decade, their political power would reach its zenith. Even though Washington had retired, his successor, John Adams, while a prickly man who would end up failing to keep the party united, was able to successfully get elected as president as the heir to all things Washington. Things like this bank monopoly helped keep them in power. It was a bulwark against the soon-to-be-surging Republicans led by Jefferson, Monroe, Madison, and, for a little while, Burr. If the de facto monopoly on credit in the state could be weakened or even destroyed, the political landscape could and would, as we shall see, change immensely. It is similar today in how the modern Republican Party, remember these are kind of two separate parties, maintains power in large part because of the inequalities of the Electoral College and rampant gerrymandering that nobody seems to be able to do anything about. But I digress. So banks were important, right? Banks are always important. What Burr and the Republicans needed were banks of their own. Really, all they needed was one bank. Just one measly bank. 
but the Federalists made sure that no new banks were allowed to be chartered, and what few smaller banks already existed at the time had been quickly bought up by the Federalist banks. After years of constant denial by the Federalist-controlled city government and state government, man had just stopped petitions to petitioning to charter a bank. The Great Federalist Wall stood firm against any new banks, or even the idea of new banks. But you know what was often petitioned for and granted? Public works! Something that could help the greater good of the city. If you petitioned New York to help the state and or the city, and you had a broad political support, your petition was almost assuredly going to be granted. On the surface, the Manhattan Company charter was one such endeavor. It described how the company would function, that it would strive for, quote, for supplying the city of New York with pure and wholesome water, unquote. And like I said, New York City needed water. Just one well in the whole city. Burr gathered six prominent men, three Republicans and three Federals, to support the petition. He even got Hamilton to sketch out the basics of the charter itself, something Hamilton was only too happy to do. Burr quietly modified the charter to expand the board of directors to so that he could uh, weigh the company in Republicans' favor. Eventually, the board leaned his way nine political allies and only three Federalists. He also made sure to sell most of the stock options, but not all of the stock options, to fellow Republicans. This ensured that he would still have support from uh, all parts of the political spectrum, but he would never have to face a revolt from the investors when they realized what he had done. This also had the nice effect of unifying the dysfunctional factions within the, his own party into a more united front, something that would be very important in 1800. Before the Manhattan Company, uh, the various factions in the Republican Party almost fought each other as much as they did any Federalists. And that uh, instinct for infighting will come back later to haunt Burr quite a bit. The final blow of his plan came in the assembly itself, where on the very last day of the assembly session in 1798, late in the afternoon, when everybody wanted to go home, on literally, like I said, the last day of work, Burr made a motion to include a slight modification to the charter. He added the following line, and be it further enacted that it shall and may be lawful for the said company to employ all such surplus capital as may belong or accrue to the said company in the purchase of public or other stock, or in any other moneyed transactions or operations not inconsistent with the constitutions and constitution and laws of this state or of the United States for the sole benefit of the company. Simply put, or more modernly put maybe, the Manhattan Company could pursue any means of profit it wanted with any surplus income it had. And you know what institutions are profitable? Banks. The, ba the company had raised $2 million at its founding and used $100,000 to pursue water sources for the city and used the other $1.9 million to start a bank, a bank most friendly to those whom the other banks in town were most assuredly not. And basically nobody had seen it coming. A couple of the assemblymen had raised questions about it, but they had been shot down pretty quickly. Um, something like this had simply never been done before. Nobody could imagine creating a water company quietly slipping in a bit of language on the last day and turning said water company into a bank. I'm sure the very concept of what had happened had to be explained to men more than a few times in the days after what he had done came known to everyone. Burr had won. He had duped everybody, and many of those people were pretty pissed. So mad, in fact, that Burr and the Republicans in general lost the next round of elections, which only happened a couple weeks after the news of what the Manhattan Company really was had broken to the public. Hamilton, in particular, was furious because without Hamilton himself, the whole damn thing never would have happened. Burr had gotten his cooperation early on, early on with two things. First, a legit water company would be a prudent and well-respected investment for a leading New Yorker like Hamilton to make, obviously. Hamilton 
Hamilton, in his extraordinarily talented and industrious ways, was the lead on the initial report that got the Assembly on board with the whole endeavor in the first place. At one point, one point, the lower house of the Assembly had thought to make the Manhattan Company a true public utility, like essentially a government organization. And that would have dashed Burr's secret scheme to bits. But Hamilton intervened, and that idea was quickly squashed. It, the second uh, carrot that uh, Burr had used on Hamilton was that he uh, Hamilton was given stocks and a couple seats on the, uh, the board of directors, like we talked about. As it turns out, the Manhattan Company was never a good water company. Their modest attempts at providing the city with water never paid off. Their initial plans of using hollowed-out logs as an aqueduct failed pretty miserably, and the company had a bad habit of digging wells that quickly became infested with human sewage, which I don't know if that's their fault. People were gross back then. New York City went several more decades until a reasonable source of water was introduced with the, with the building of the Croton Aqueduct. But the Manhattan Company greatly expanded the voter base and was a pretty good bank. It exists to this very day, after a fashion. Over the years, it merged with other financial entities into what is known today as J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., the largest bank in America with assets of over $2.5 tri $2 dollars. Chances are pretty good you're a customer. But also, let's not kid ourselves. The Manhattan Company was never really about the water, was it? Though it would have been nice, and I see no reason why Burr and his cohorts could not have done both, they didn't. One of the Federalist's great bulwarks in New York, access to, access to credit, was dealt a body blow it never could recover from. And how could it? Men were now able to freely vote in a way that they never could have only a year or two earlier. All of the Federalists tried to dismember the bank, discharter the bank buy the bank, but since he had the board of directors heavily swayed in his direction, it was in Burr's direction, these threats were never really that dangerous. This new bank allowed for something that had been kept in the shadows to creep out into the sunlight, public Republican identity, something that had not really existed before. While the first tier leaders of the Republican Party were well known to the public, Aaron Burr, Livingston, uh, the Clintons, uh, most second-tier leaders, like lieutenants of the party, had kept a low profile. But now, now they could announce themselves knowing that a bank had their back. All of a sudden, the fog of war lifted, and Federalists realized for the first time that they were not as popular in New York as they thought they had been. And while the fruits of this enterprise would not bear much for Burr and his allies in the short term, uh, it would all be worth it for Republicans in 1800, which we are getting to. The presidential election and crisis of 1800 is generally considered one of the two most important elections in all of U.S. history the other being Abraham Lincoln's victory in 1860, which doomed the country to a civil war. The election of 1800 does not have so obvious an outcome, or disastrous an outcome, but still ranks right up there. 1800 was a rematch of four years earlier, Adams versus Jefferson, with Burr again serving as the Republicans' vice president candidate. And unlike four years ago, spoiler, Jefferson won. Eventually. This peaceful transfer of power from one party to another was by no means an expected or known thing that could even happen. The U.S. had only had three previous elections, two of which were basically no contests because George Washington ran unopposed, and a third one had been a victorious had been victorious for his chosen successor, John Adams. But that peaceful transfer was what ended up being a peaceful transfer of power in 1800 was a near thing, and many folks back then did not think the young country would survive it. The Federalist wave had been running high for a couple of years across the entire country. They controlled the federal government pretty handedly and were making serious inroads into Republican strongholds in the South, like Georgia, the Carolinas, and most discouraging, Virginia herself. Side note, in this era, Virginia is like the power of the country. It's like California, or Texas, or New York, is New York is today. 
Virginia had was had one of the biggest economies. The lead, the federal leadership was just rife with Virginians. Virginia had a lot of sway in the early years of the country. Something Virginia hasn't had probably since this era. <laughs> As mentioned before, Burr and his allies were all kicked out of New York government for the time being. There was a quasi-war with France, with France attacking American ships and hurting the economy. This benefited the general anti-French attitudes of the Federalists. This benefited the general anti-French attitudes of the Federalists and damaged the public damaged the public standing of prominent Republicans such as Thomas Jefferson, who was a big fan of France and a supporter of the French Revolution long after he should have given up on them. But as the months and days and years got closer and closer to 1800, things were starting to change. That would severely limit the Federalists' ability to maintain the power they had won. First, the Federalist Party began to split behind the scenes. Adams, while an intelligent and accomplished man, and frankly one of my favorite uh, founding fathers, had begun to weaken as a president and as a united leader of his party. He had made the mistake of keeping most of Washington's cabinet, men who were not loyal to him, but were loyal to Washington, which was fine, but they were also loyal to Hamilton, which was not fine. Hamilton, the man who had tried to unseat Adams in 1786 for Charles Pinckney, one of Hamilton's own men, Hamilton, the man who had quit the government instead of working for Adams, Hamilton, the man who began to attack Adams almost as much as he would anybody else in the entire country. You have your two most prominent Federalists who, to various degrees, are fighting with each other all the time. You can see where this is going. A fractured party is a weak party. The Federalists had also begun to feel the sting of the public's general opinion turning back on them. Specifically, the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 caused a strong and maybe unexpected backlash. The acts had been passed at a time when war with France seemed most likely and were designed to curtail criticism of the government in a time of war, both by U.S. citizens and foreigners in, foreigners who happened to be living in the country. The former was obviously much more important to U.S. citizens than the latter. They also gave the government broad power to deport any foreigners who might prove troublesome. But it, like I said, it was that first part, limiting people's ability to f and freedom to criticize the government that most infuriated Americans. Many Republicans feared that it would be used as a political weapon to silence any opposing political party who dared not go along with the Federalist plans. In more modern terms, Trump would have loved the Alien and Sedition Act. He would have used them all day to quiet anybody who criticized him or his administration. Oh, oh, almost deleted the whole document. The Republicans immediately sprang into action. Jefferson pinned the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, which both argued that the federal government did not have the authority to enact laws not specified in the Constitution. Specifically, he wrote in the Kentucky one, quote, the several states who formed that instrument, the Constitution, being sovereign and independent, have the unquestionable right to judge of its infraction, and that a nullification by those states of all unauthorized acts is the rightful remedy. Uh, no, end quote. Nullification is not talked about much anymore. The Civil War kind of killed the idea. But in the early years of the country, when so much was largely unknown and there was so little legal precedent, the idea that a state or two could nullify a federal law was not quite as extreme as it might sound today. There is evidence that Burr had authored, some, authored something similar to the Virginia Resolution to be introduced in the New York Assembly, but as so often happens with the man, it never actually happened. All in all, 26 individuals were prosecuted under the Sedition Act. Most were friendly or outright Republicans, and all had been critical of the Adams administration. Most of them also ran newspapers. And while the, uh, while the Alien and Sedition Acts never quite became the weapons of terror that some had feared, they proved hugely unpopular with voters and helped propel Jefferson to victory. Both would be 
mostly repealed or replaced uh, early in Jefferson's presidency. Also, and to his credit, because he had to have known it would hurt him politically back at home, Adams had successfully negotiated an end to the quasi-war with France, easing tensions between the two countries and rolling back a large part of the nationalistic fervor Federalists were running on. The Federalist juggernaut had feet of clay. Looking forward to 1800, Jefferson thought he had 61 electoral votes in the South locked up pretty good. That meant he needed nine more for the magic number of 70. Remember, it's a smaller country, less states, so you need less electoral votes to win. Those had to come from New York, Pennsylvania, or New Jersey, with New York being the most likely place of success. New York had just changed its electoral process so that the lower house of the New York legislature, the assembly, would vote directly on the electoral representatives themselves. So this is a important side note. Back then, how each state chose the members, how each state chose their members of the electoral college varied a lot more than it does today. Uh, you could have a direct vote, popular, a popular vote, so winner takes all, uh, or you could have this some assembly or some state legislature, either an upper house or a lower house, depending on what the states wanted, could vote on it themselves. So, so in New York's case, if the Republicans win the assembly, they win those electoral votes, they win the presidency. Burr and every man of means in the state went to work. Burr's process for canvassing and winning votes was similar to years past, but it was simply better funded and at this point had been become more refined. The General Republican Committee ran out of Burr's home, oversaw smaller units that each reported to a specific ward of the city. Burr knew that his only chance for victory was to win New York City itself. The rest of the state was too far Federalist and not populated enough to be really worth the time and money it would take to get votes out there, and essentially the countryside, if you want to think of it that way. Similar, actually, to how New York works today, where New York City, New York City being as blue as it is, basically makes the whole state blue and for presidential campaign, presidential elections. Similar to his last command in the war, Burr had a dossier created about every eligible voter in the city, which was no small feat. By the end of the 18th century, about two-thirds of the eligible men in the city qualified to vote, including free black men. Beyond basic stats like name and address, these dossiers included information about the voters' political preferences, their political history, their zeal for any number of political topics, their finances, uh, which was useful for soliciting donations, and their willingness to volunteer on election day. It's hard to say that Burr invented this process. Smart politicians have been taking the temperature of the public for centuries, but what can be said is that Burr was well ahead of his time. One historian compared the political machine he built to Tammany Hall, the political juggernaut that would dominate New York City for over a century. And while he, he so, some of the origins of his uh, political organization do come out of the literal Tammany Hall that existed in New York City, I don't know if it still exists anymore, the political machine known as Tammany Hall does not actually become get created until years later. Aaron Burr did not create the Tammany Hall political organization. He just happened to be working out of the same building sometimes. Facing off against Burr was Hamilton, armed with his own army of committees, ward units, and voting information. Though by most accounts, Burr was better and well better and well more organized at this part of politics than Hamilton ever was. Hamilton was also hampered by a truly, truly uninspiring list of candidates for the assembly. Like, abysmal. Like, I could barely find their names in any of my research and never had heard of them before. Only one of the books I read for this podcast even bothered to list their names. For a variety of reasons, Hamilton could not rally any of the prominent men from his party to stand for election. Hamilton had made a lot of them mad. Some of them already had jobs. Some of them were kind of aging out of being active politicians. 
There were a variety of reasons. Burr, on the other hand, had assembled a group of candidates that made each of the major factions of his party happy and feel included. Where Hamilton's party was falling apart due to infighting, Burr was able to oversee a coalition that had remarkably little infighting or backstabbing. Organized out of his house, men and women came and went at all times of day and night, forcing Burr to turn his home into a version of a pop-up hotel. Both sides ran aggressive, for the times at least, outreach and get-out-the-vote initiatives. Burr rented out every horse and carriage he came across and ran a temporary taxi service to ensure that his, vote, his voters had no excuse about getting to the polls. Voting day was organized chaos, as it, you know, as it often is. Folks turned out in numbers unseen in the young country, and Burr and his lieutenants ran themselves ragged, attempting to make sure that people showed up and voted where they were supposed to. Burr himself manned a polling station for at least 10 hours, while Hamilton rode a horse to all corners of the city like a general, trying to muster as much turnout as he could. In the end, Burr's efforts, from the Manhattan Company to his information gathering to his organization on Election Day, paid off with an overwhelming victory. The Republicans won 12 seats when all they needed was 9. New York was safely in the pocket of Republicans. This decisive victory for the Republican Party earned Burr his VP spot, with, unlike last time, assurances from the other leaders of the party, most of them whom were in the South, that the South would fully support him for VP. Another sidebar, Hamilton freaks out about this uh, this uh, disaster of an election and proposes to Governor John Jay, a fellow Federalist, and of Jay's treaty, fame, and infamy, that he call a lame duck session of the assembly, which the Federalists would control and change, which would still, which the Federalists would still control, and change the way electors are chosen in New York to be based on a popular vote, which would ensure that the Federalists would get some number of electors, the exact number being unknown until an actual theoretical election, of course. Jay, to his credit, saw this ploy for what it was and dismissed it out of hand. The Democratic Republicans had won, fair and square. The presidency was Jefferson's. Unless. 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 Somehow. Jefferson and Burr tied in the Electoral College. Because, if you forgot, I am reminding you, everybody ran for president back then. The first, pla- first place becoming president and second becoming vice president. So, technically, Burr and Jefferson were running against each other. Each elector from each state had two votes, and they could use those votes for whomever they pleased. So the plan should have been enough electors vote for Jefferson so that he gets past the magic number of 70, enough votes, enough vote for Burr so he comes in second, and a few throw their votes away and vote for men who have no chance of winning. They could vote for the King of England, for all it mattered, or a dead guy, or themselves, or their friend in some other state, whatever. But, but, this was not the plan. And frankly, dear listener, I don't understand what I'm about to tell you. Because it boggles the mind that men who helped create a country out of almost nothing, create a constitution that has endured, for better or for worse, and created so many legal and cultural precedents and traditions that are still around, could possibly come up with the plan, the plan, that I am about to explain to you. The plan was to kindly ask each Republican elector to vote once for Jefferson and once for Burr, which would create a tie. Duh. And then they just expected someone to not follow these orders and either vote for Jefferson twice or more likely not vote for Burr. So, like, let's say they expected someone, like, let's say in Georgia to vote for Jefferson because uh, that's more likely to happen because he's a Southerner and everyone loves Jefferson. Jefferson's, like, the most prominent man in the country 
because George Washington's dead. Ben Franklin's dead. And then maybe vote for just some guy, but not Burr, because he's a northerner. Now, who they expected to keep their who they expected to not keep their word and not been made clear to anyone. The guy in Georgia that I'm talking about doesn't actually exist. There's no one who's been assigned the task of not voting for Burr. They just expected someone to do it. It's an it is truly an own goal. Only worse because it was inflicted largely by choice. It'd be like if you're playing soccer and you're dribbling out of your goal, you just turn around and kick it in your own goal on purpose. Jefferson and the other leaders were correct that they could not make everybody vote the way they wanted. Up until literally this week in July of 2020, electors could technically vote for whomever they wanted, regardless of what their states desired. But that doesn't mean you plan on winning the presidency on the expectation that someone, who knows who, will disobey your order. So, Burr and Jefferson tied at 73 votes each, a tie with no precedent to fall back on in unclear language in the Constitution. If everybody had simply failed to get past the magic number, they would know of what to do. The House would vote for whomever they wanted. But this was not that. This was a tie, something they had not really thought of. And so, with uncertainty and no clear map, the problem went to the House of Representatives, a House that was still controlled by the Federalists. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, stay safe. Wear your mask. Don't be a dummy.